This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. to an exciting conference and um, my name's Denise Erickson. I'm really thrilled today that I'm running a session here about the dreaded F word formats which sends traditional documentary makers often into a spin. But the good news is that, you know, all of it, like what I find really fascinating about formats is that they often originate from really shit-hot programs and then come with expertise which then get sort of lumped into um, a Bible and it becomes a format. So I think that why I wanted to do this session is because there's money to be made in them, their heels, and we want to talk about how that happens today. Um, we've got three fabulous panellists. On my far right is Julie Christie, not the actor, but... She She's is got 20 years on me, I promise. Uh, <laughs> she, um, a lot of people here won't know Julie's work, but she was known as New Zealand's format queen because I don't think there's anybody in the business that's made or created or fought for um, more formats than what Julie has. She's been spectacularly successful at her business. She's now moved over to the other side of television and that she's on the board of TV3 and she's an incredibly shrewd businesswoman. So she comes from a sort of more business end of, of the discussion today but also more recently I mean quite recently as an exec producer on the block so she still knows her chops when it comes to production. Um, in the centre we have Lyndall Marks who's executive producer from Channel 7 who um, is the brains behind the spectacularly successful border security which has gone around the world and we'll talk a lot about that later and has now been made in um, other sorts of countries as well as Australia. So she's got a lot to add and my right here is the only bloke, the token bloke. Um, we're welcome. I mean, you're, we're pleased to have you on board. Bring a token back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Magnus Temple from The Garden in London, who um, started his career as a documentary maker, but who's an absolute legend about ma ma coming up with these fabulous um, factual um, programs and then turning them into amazing formats. And selling companies to big companies and then going out and doing exactly the same with another company. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I'm, I, there's a businessman here. I'm busting to hear about that. <laughs> Just so you know how the session will work today, we're going to talk initially about what constitutes a format specifically in, in factual but also more generally. Then we're going to look at some of the formats that these guys have created. Um, border security I've talked about. We're going to concentrate on two of Magnus's ones uh, initially. Um, the audience, which hasn't been made in Australia, and keeping Australia alive and Britain alive, which is um, keeping Australia alive is about to launch on the ABC. Um, we are also going to talk about how you develop format. And then Julie in particular has got shed loads of advice, and I'm sure the other guys have too, on how to protect your ideas in the international marketplace, if it's at all possible. And there's a couple of um, clips that I'll be playing from some of her early shows, which and she's got some great anecdotes around 
um, how those shows went. So, and I've got loads of clips for you, so there'll be loads of stuff to do. So let's rip in, guys. Um, what constitute a, uh, what <coughs> constitutes a format? in general and specifically in factual. Go on, Julie, I know you're busting to get into this one. <laughs> well, I think most people who come to you and say, I've got this great new um, idea, believe the idea is a format, but actually that's, in my business anyway, that's completely wrong. It's the execution that is the format. Um, you very seldom see an original idea, but you do see original executions. I mean, the easiest example, obviously, is that um, a talent show is not an original idea, but when you add turning chairs or whatever to it, um, it does become a format. So it, it's the framework around which an idea um, works. Uh, I think that formats have been around a long time in entertainment. Um, when you think of shows like Opportunity Knocks, This Is Your Life, which is probably one of the oldest ones. But they really came about, I guess, um, for factual television with a guy called Peter Bazalgette, who's um, now chairman of ITV in London in the mid-90s, who took um, game show elements and put them into like, factual and lifestyle programming, um, firstly with changing rooms, and then uh, which was a, um, a home show, a makeover show, but what he did is he swapped neighbours and they did a, a room for each other. And of course, it was a shock horror of other people's tastes. So that, I think, is in my memory anyway, um, and, and I made that show for um, about five years in New Zealand. It was made for a number of years here too changing rooms of the so that's how to me factual became um, format is when rules structure I guess was added to what would probably have been a docu soap so it's really about the execution of a particular idea rather than the idea itself what what are your guys thoughts on, on what constitutes I uh, obviously you have more knowledge in that area but I think for from my perspective for the shows that I do um, including border security, it's about the, the dynamic of the, the adaption uh, from one market to another. So it's very different in every market. So depending on the sort of show you've got, you've got to be able to adapt into another market, so geographically, legally. Um, you know, are you going to get the access in another market? So that format, you know, I agree, it's, it's, it, the idea is one thing, it's the execution of the idea, but that format needs to be able to adapt, keep the, the credibility and the integrity of the original format but somehow adapt. And I can talk more about that with border security later, if yeah. you like. Okay. Um, yes, I was going to say that there is obviously something when you're moving from one territory to, to another, um, you, you, can't, you can't be so sort of stuck in your ways to realise that exactly the same is going to work in every market. But um, I suppose I would say that it's only recently that you might regard even some observational documentaries as being formats and it's partly the way in which they're um, packaged, the kind of the proposition uh, uh, and what, and I suppose the expertise as well when it comes down to execution. I mean, some of the um, shows we've been involved in, um, starting with uh, One Born Every Minute um, uh, are incredibly complex shows to pull off. And so therefore I think that um, uh, partly the expertise is um, a critical aspect of it as well. Because you started as a pure documentary maker, really, didn't you? Yeah, pretty, I mean, from if I sort of track back 10 years, and I remember making um, series and films 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, <laughs> um, I don't really remember being very conscious of formats, um, uh, apart from, as Julie said, in the more kind of entertainment, factual entertainment space. And it's only really recently that I've become sort of aware of the... 
uh, I suppose the power of a format and I mean another way you might go the sort of the power of a brand if you like um, and some of the stuff that we've done is is effectively just observational documentary um, but it's definitely also could be regarded as a format. So give us a couple of names of like you've talked about <clears throat> 24 hours is a good brand for you isn't it? Yeah so, so uh, I mean uh, uh, the certainly in the UK at least the series that we're best known for is 24 hours in A&E um, and I suppose the key proposition for that is, is that, you know, there's been millions of um, series made in emergency departments before. Um, but first of all, this is a fixed rig series. So we, we, we now use about 100 cameras that are fixed into the walls of an emergency department. Um, and also, of course, you've got the proposition of it being a 24 hour period. But beyond that, there's loads and loads of different elements um, um, to the format and to uh, to how it works, but but we're not producing anything. We're not changing what we film. Uh, we're just kind of packaging it in such a way that makes it feel distinctive and and uh, fortunately people come back to. But also, you, you did twenty four hours in prison, right? Police custody. In, yeah, that, that's custody. Or police custody. Yeah. yeah. So that's. I mean, that's a kind of that's a, a spin off um, series that we do for um, Channel Four, and I think it airs on SBS here. Yes, it does. Um, it's brilliant. Twenty four hours in police custody. Mm. Um, and in a way, we use there. We also use the twenty-four hours notion, but because um, certainly in the UK, at least, if you're arrested, um, as soon as you're brought into the custody suite, the the, the police have twenty-four hours to either um, charge or release you. So they've, they're under this time pressure to figure out, okay, what's gone on, and you know, are you really responsible? So in a way, there that we we use the ticking clock in A and E because they're dealing with life and death. In custody, we use it because you know they're, they're they're working against the clock to try and solve a crime. So, so I can say something about that because mm. that actually works into the geographical differences from country to country. Because that actually is brilliant as the show is. I'm a big I have doesn't a work force. here. It doesn't work here. <laughs> it doesn't work here because the police won't allow it to work. Um, <clears throat> they wouldn't let us into custody, and they don't hold for 24 hours. So it's it's you, different laws. Do you because um, we we found the same thing in the UK. We didn't we didn't imagine for a moment that we would be let into a police custody mm. suite, and uh, it took us a long time to get the access. <laughs> so. but, does. but if you if you're going to call it a format rather than a docu so the 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 real thing is that fixed rig, which I guess you, you, your show isn't a format until someone else wants to buy it. You know, they wanted another version. Yeah. But I, I guess uh, there's been periods of time when people have been inspired by shows. You can call it thieving <laughs> or you can call it being inspired. And as a result, um, but uh, you, your best advantage is if you can develop something, which it's just easier to pay you the format fee to learn how to do it than it is to start yeah. from, oh, and we, we, you we know, did, with the mistakes. I think that's the amazing thing about that fixed rig. Honestly, who would even try... When you could just pay what seven or eight, maybe eight or ten percent mm. of oh, the production be, budget. <laughs> really? <laughs> Don't you know about this market? <laughs> be lucky. Uh, <laughs> um, but but so that's the great thing because that made it a format because that expertise was worth buying. Wasn't it? And and you do. I mean, we hear that quite a lot. Um, is that that people go well? To be honest with you. It's much easier to buy. I mean, it, it, it's not that distinctive. What Who would want to start again? It's much easier to mm. to to buy that expertise mm. and start again. I mean, Julie, I remember you saying that you sort of got into the business of creating your own formats, and we are going to talk about one of them later this session. 
um, because other networks were being inspired by your ideas. Are you able to talk a little bit oh, about man, that's that? A, it's a very New Zealand story, but um, I'm at a show, one of my very first shows in um, New Zealand in the mid-90s, and um, <laughs> then I got a phone call from Australia from um, a woman called Kay Brown, which probably a few people would know, and she said, uh, we're making the same show with uh, the same presenter as you, and we want to know where you got your footage from. And I went, what? What? How can you be? And she went, well, we are. Anyway, so I call up Chris O'Mara, who was uh, Tim Warner's um, predecessor as programmer at uh, Channel 7, and he said, why would we use you and Kiwi used to make TV? You know, got at it. So, <laughs> so basically, that's how I came to be in format. So I then kind of gave up pitching in the Australian market and, and um, had a go on the American market and sold my first pitch. So, so for me, it was really, it came out of necessity. I've been making docos, no money in it, and made a two-part doco series um, and cut it down into a little two-minute show reel, which we're going to show later, and went off to the States and bingo, first meeting. So, um, but really it came out of necessity and the, and, and the fact that I couldn't sell in this country at that time, um, therefore went straight to the States. And there's no money in New Zealand, for, so, you know. I mean, because you raise an interesting point, though, because it's very hard to, and we're going to talk about this in a bit more detail later. I mean, they probably had every right to copy it, under law, in the sense that you can't do much about it. Oh, oh no, at that, that point. Yeah. I mean, this this was, was made from um, sell through videos out of the UK with UK when, footage. When was that? Was that? It was Peter Brock? It was a cool police camera action in oh, the UK. Right. It's oh, police yeah, stop. Yeah. 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 But well, you know, I laugh now because you know they had every right. You know, because in the end, it wasn't format. It yeah. was a guy standing on the side of a freeway. Yeah doing pieces to cam, and there were clips between it. Um, it was just a bit of an eye-opener for me, or like, what, what, what happened to my show? Um, so that, I guess, made me think a lot more about, um, you know, intellectual property. And But in the end, I just, you let it go, don't you? Yeah, and you, yeah. And later you don't let it go. Tonight on Border Security... Would you be able to explain to me what these values are? This woman has an answer for everything. It's numbers. I have something with numbers. But a single word gives officers the tip to what she's been up to. Because, to be honest, I don't believe you. How did the series come about? Uh, well, it um, was, a, I think, a combination of various ideas, but it took 18 months, as you were saying before, to get that access to work with the government to get them into an area where they were comfortable to, if you think about commercial television, actually working with customs and immigration and quarantine. Um, so it was 18 months of, of basically convincing them that this would be okay, that they would have approval rights. Um, what sort of approval rights did you have to well, give up? It's, it exists today. I mean, it's the only way you can get access with a show like this is, is to basically turn around and say, look, um, we don't want to mess with security government security methodology um, so we shoot the story they don't impact on the editorial but they will look at it and say look uh, there's an officer in the background that's gone undercover so you have to blur him and I'm sorry I think that that's fair enough um, or they might say can you just remove the little bit we're there where the officer might pick up a telephone and do something because that's showing methodology and who wants the crooks to see what's going on. So there are ways to tell these stories very effectively without necessarily breaching any security or methodology. So what's the purpose of your trip to Australia? For relaxing holiday. Relaxing holiday? Yeah, to see how it is. To see how it is, okay. 
See, I thought if you were coming here, you'd have a reason. What are you going to do while you're here? To see how I look better. Look around at what? I have to see them. You have to see. Yeah. So basically, it's an unplanned trip to Australia. Okay. What? You know, I just did a pitch session and, and everyone's saying, oh, you know, they're going to be big, noisy characters. This guy is not a big, noisy character. He's got integrity. He's fantastic at what he does. The thing that made him brilliant, if you notice that look, the way he just gives the once over to that guy, <laughs> that to me is the most dramatic moment. And that is what makes Border the format. That's what makes it successful. That's that cliffhanger that we can go to break on just a look by an officer that basically, because the show is, let's face it, an anatomy of a lie, the, that look basically says, I don't believe you're full of it. So that's so important, um, those, those little moments that to, to, to put a show like Border Security together, to have an officer like that that's not fabulous talent up front, but he's got incredible strength, he's got incredible drama just by who he is and what he does. So when we look at other areas, taking on a show like this, you've basically got to say, guys like that are okay. If they're the real deal, they've got to be the real deal. And they've got to basically give that drama just with that look or just that his silence is, is better than anything. He's, he's actually very a very silent officer. He just asks a couple of questions and basically has that, I don't believe your story, you're full of shit. Look about him. Um, and that's, so that's the sort of stuff that you presumably put in the Bibles and things. In the, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, we, um, showed before we have it like i've got a little bit of the border bible here which is about it is actually about that thick but, but it blew, blew up, up the photocopy before she could print it all out to bring for <laughs> everyone you. was complaining the officer couldn't get things printed so um but but you know to to basically try to put border into different countries is it's it's difficult because things happen for instance when border went to america initially um, it's geographically very different to Australia. We, they've got land border crossings. We don't have that here. So all our, all our border security stories are about flights coming in, um, about immigration, about quarantine. Yes, CEFs, you know, the, the container examination facilities, but it's all coming in from abroad because we're an island. Whereas if you, if you look at America, when they first did border a few years ago, um, while there were fantastic stories and much bigger drug finds, some of the land border crossings just crossed that line that did not work in that format because they did things like um you know the the land the, the border crossing with mexico they showed uh families with children trying to get across the border and it was just shut down people just it wasn't didn't have the popularity that our show has because what we're trying to do is stop prohibited prohibitive items and um you know bad guys with drugs uh people with in, incorrect documents uh, who are going to come and you know whatever we're trying to stop that legitimate stuff. You don't want to do anything that involves children who are trying to get a better life. So it was very subtle, but it didn't work. But we had to basically say, you're never going to get a show to work where you're showing little children trying to scramble trying over the fence. Yeah. So that geography didn't translate with border yeah. security. Yeah. Um, but it does now. And they're, they're actually very successful. They're, they're launching a new one and they've got a very successful show in Canada. Why didn't they just make... Why Had they run your show first and established an audience... They just picked it up and... I just don't think, it's like, I don't think in America in particular that an Australian accent, well, they don't understand what we're talking about anyway because we abbreviate everything, yeah. we don't speak properly apparently, but um, I don't think it would translate in an American market. Um, for all I know, it was, shot on, it was shown on some you know, cable, but not 
not, not, not on, mainstream. on the, the no. mainstream. Um, and I think that, that really they're not interested in, if you're talking about border security, they want to know what's going to impact on their country. <coughs> Who cares about, I mean, they barely know where Australia is, for heaven's sake. It's funny, isn't it? Because it's some, I mean, it's, there's a sort of universality to it, but also something very specific. Yeah. So, so you kind of go some formats could work on finished tape because basically it's it's universal to anyone. Um, like so, medical. The, some of the medical stuff we do works because it's universal. Whereas, as you say, border security. You, you can't really care about someone else's borders in the same way you care about your own. Well, that's right. And I think a lot of Australian shows have been unsuccessful going overseas because Australians are actually very parochial. We want to see what's happening here in Australia. And I think similarly in America, um, and as you yeah, say, if yeah. it's to do with a show, if the format is border security in whatever context you want to put it, it's important what's coming here in America. You want to know what's coming into your country. How are they stopping yeah. the bad guys and the drugs at the border? Yeah. Not so how did they, they, did they change the Americans? Did they change the title after they'd done the initial series, The Homeland Security? Because there's something about the resonance for the US, I would have thought, about Homeland Security, that it feels like you know, that's really kind of protecting, yeah. protecting our nation yeah. as opposed to, as you say... Um, trying to stop families looking for a better life. Yeah, no, I think they do. And so you were saying you wrote, you <coughs> wrote the Bible for the format and for Canada and... And you basically give them everything. I mean, you, you try and sort of subtly say how you do the show, what, what constitutes a show. In a show like this, you've got your A, your B, your C story, you've got your cliffhangers. Showing that Jacko clip before is um is important because even in this bible we've written you know it's not it, it doesn't have to be a big character it has to be a character that's got integrity and passion and just a look can is enough to go to break something that says i don't believe you but the the big thing and and trying to impart this and i know you guys would be big on this is what really to me makes factual is the word mystery it's a mystery and so if you can get that across and say it's got to be mysterious whatever you're doing about this show You've got to show that you've got to get the audience wondering what's in the box. Is he or isn't he? Or is, it, is she or isn't she guilty? You know, what's, and you also said the anatomy of a lie. Can it's you just a, expand on that a bit? I think the reason that border is universally so um, popular and has been picked up as a format internationally is because we as humans, as an audience, love to see, the, love to watch, to hear the anatomy of a lie. You love to see someone caught out on a lie um, for all the right reasons, because they are carrying drugs or because they do have false documents um, or because they do have an apple in their bag and the dog's actually sat and so it's pretty obvious that they do have food. Um, so I think that that is, to me, that's, that's it's a really crucial, if you could find other shows that show that anatomy of a lie, but it's very hard because obviously it's all about law enforcement. By the, by the way, I think, um, I mean, we haven't got a clip of it, but some of the elements of police custody that's also what's built. That's built around because yeah. basically, that it's su it's it's such a pleasure kind of watching those interview situations where you see someone being kind of caught out on the lie. So they start the lie, yeah. and then slowly, the as the police build their case, you sort of see it all disintegrate. And there's a. But do you know what's just <clears throat> as important? I think, and and again, in the Bible for the format is the false positives, because I don't think it's all about. I think there's there's no integrity in a show if. There's no credibility if it's all about they've all got drugs. Sometimes they don't. Mm. So there's the anatomy of a lie. Yeah, yeah. But actually the officers were wrong. No, actually, at the end of the day, this person was innocent. They weren't carrying anything. <clears throat> Their shampoo was alarming. 
But that's almost, in a way, that's part of the kind of the mystery or the intrigue, isn't it? Yeah, you you have to have a kind of uncertain ending, you, otherwise it would be entirely predictable. And what they've all picked up on as well with this particular show is you have to have a resolve. And personally, I think with all factual, um, there has to be a resolve. It's, it's very inconclusive for an audience to watch something. You want to know, did the person go to jail? How many drugs mm. were they carrying? What was the street value of those drugs? Um, you know, how much food was in their bag, whatever. You, you want that resolve, yeah. so those, that text resolve is very important. So all these shows, all these different formats in different countries have that. Yeah, and again, it's part, and you've given me a lovely segue, actually, into a resolve. A resolve. Um, and I'm going to talk about the audience, which is um, one of Magnus's shows, and it's very, very different from something like Border Security. At some point, all of us have a life-changing decision to make. But what if you're faced with a dilemma you just can't solve alone? Could a group of total strangers help you? Imagine if 50 people followed you for a week. Sorry, could you take your shoes off there? Sorry to be a pain. Watched your every move. Right then, I must go and do some work. Okay, <laughs> we're coming to follow you. You want to come and follow me? <laughs> Asked all the tough questions. Can you just tell me, you, are you being emotionally blackmailed? Can we just stop for a minute? And got to the root of the problem. That's the breakthrough that we needed. You've just opened this up now for us. At the end of the week, would you face the anger of the mob? She's absolutely delusional. Or receive the wisdom of the crowd? I watched the episode in the farm because I was a little sceptical and I wanted to see how this played out. Wow, I just think it was an absolute rip-snorter and there's one of those few occasions I wish I was still commissioning because I would have grabbed it because what it did is it looked at the, you know, the difficulty of farming in the current age. It looked at, you know, family responsibilities and history and instead of getting your usual stable of experts and you just got well cast Joe Public but how did that one come about I mean brave uh, commissioning so there, yeah <laughs> um, it was in the end brave commissioning but um, it was uh, it kind of sort of had a complicated evolution so I'll try and keep it quite simple but it, it started um, with a conversation with a commissioner at Channel 4 uh, where he said uh, um, I think he was thinking of some Woody Allen film anyway he, he was saying I wonder what it would be like if you were followed around by at that point, 100 people. And then we tried to sort of work out what the show might be. And um, partly was based on the fact that uh, a lot of people were seeking advice over the internet for um, issues or decisions that they were trying to make. So we, 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 we came up with the idea that if you made that kind of physical in some way, um, that could be quite an interesting way of looking at everyday dilemmas. Um, Just and explain in, in, some of the dilemmas for us so um, that people understand. So, um, so they might be, so they were quite, people at real crossroads in their life. There was one, um, uh, the farmer that you were talking about, um, he was someone that had inherited a farm. His two uncles still lived on it. Um, he was the key to keeping it going. Um, so it's quite a sort of something that a lot of people could relate to in terms of, okay, uh, my duty to my family and to a livelihood. Um, his girlfriend, who uh, was basically saying, this is just too much of a burden for you, 
come and free yourself from it and come and do something else. So his dilemma was like, do I stick with the farm? It's like, it's me or the farm. It was slightly that kind of dilemma. Um, so we, I think we, we liked the fact that the dilemmas were very real. So that there was a kind of real documentary integrity, but in a way the, con the construct was uh, obviously in somewhat, somewhat surreal. So there was a kind of, a, 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 sometimes a comic pleasure to the fact that, um, uh, that you had so many people trying to kind of cram themselves into someone's apartment uh, and, and so on. So it, it was, but I, I think, I mean, it's probably worth saying that um, certainly in the UK, it was not a massive success. Um, so it was a format that everyone loved when they, they, they saw it and they heard about it. And, and we, it was remade in, I think, about 12 different territories um, around the world. Including um, CBS piloted it. And, and CBS um, uh, uh, piloted it in, in, in America. And in fact, they, funny, coming back to this sort of um, expertise and execution, all that, actually, they piloted it before we'd made anything. I think we'd just filmed um, something in the UK and, and, and put a tiny little teaser together. We hadn't, we hadn't got a finished episode at all. So that was actually an unusual example of something commissioned um, of very little. Um, so in a way, I, I, I think it's worth talking about what, what was good about it, but it's also probably worth also just talking a little bit about why ultimately it didn't succeed, um, because it obviously tickles people, and it did. And, and whenever we pitched it, everyone just was like, that's great, we love that. <laughs> um, and I think it's possibly the fact that... Um, it was maybe just too bizarre um, so that so that although you were kind of you had this you were deconstructing a dilemma within it the the construct was so unbelievable and so artificial and so out of this world um, that it didn't quite work I think often people with TV sort of like to know what they're getting and they can be surprised along the way but they need to have some expectation before they come to something um, which is, in some ways, it's a shame. You kind of wish that you could come up with something bold and crazy and people would just give it a go. But um, I think it's easier to surprise people once you've brought them to something rather than them really not knowing what it is and giving it a go. But commercially, it was a success in the sense that you did sell it to 12 different companies, territories as a, as a pilot. As a, yeah, uh, as as a, a format. Sorry, as a format. Yeah, we did. But I mean, to, I mean, just coming back to the point about you know, how you protect and make money from formats. In a way, um, if you're, I mean, basically you, you're, you're, you get a format fee when you sell something internationally to territory, which, um, I mean, it may, it may differ, but is probably normally about kind of 5% of the total budget in that territory. So it, it, when you're talking about some of the countries who are doing it, what did, had, they didn't have very big budget. So it didn't end up being a massively commercial venture. Um, Although, you know, every little helps. Yeah, okay. I mean, actually, that may be one of the other problems, is that, um, I don't know about you, but I, 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 formats tend to be easier to sell um, if they're easy, easy to, relatively easy to make in terms of affordable. Mm -hmm. um, as soon as you start talking about, okay, so we've got this idea, it involves like 50 people, you're like, oh, bloody hell. Yeah. So, <laughs> Mind you, the next one that we're going to talk about, which is keeping Britain alive and then keeping... Oh, yeah, that, that wasn't cheap either. Huh? 
That wasn't cheap either. No, no, mm. it sure as hell wasn't cheap and it wasn't easy. So that's an interesting one because that's like the opposite of the audience. So that was, because uh, um, with the audience, I think we all, it just felt so much like a format, you know, because it's obviously a complete construction. Whereas <laughs> when we did uh, Keeping Britain Alive, which is essentially um, a sort of one day snapshot of uh, the healthcare, um, in this case of Britain, um, uh, so it was a whole series made on a single day. We, we, were, we didn't really think of it as a format particularly. It just felt like it was a, um, a, an interesting and an unusual thing to do. Um, so in a way, but as a format, it's almost, I'd say, probably more successful and more enduring than the audience was. Mm. Um, and it, so it might be just worth talking a bit about why that was. Yeah, carry so I'm on. sort of anticipating your questions around. No, it? no, don't, don't. Do no, no, rip in, carry on. <laughs> don't stop. Um, tell me about that. Uh, so, why it was more successful. Well, okay, so um, uh, one, I, 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 there's something about TV and the endeavour of TV, which is I think it's people get quite excited by a, a, a production challenge um, and the production challenge here is is that how can you possibly make a satisfying series out of a single day of filming um, and uh, so I mean for, for in Britain we had I think a hundred film crews out on this single day and we knew that the rushes they came back with that was going to be our eight-part series um, and obviously, having done 24 hours in A&E, we knew that there, were, there was a potential to get quite satisfying narratives playing out in that time frame. Um, but it was, of course, a slightly crazy endeavour that was it really going to work? Were we, you know, what were we actually going to come back with? And you're also having to trust lots and lots and lots of freelance crews who are out there in incredibly sort of sensitive um, situations um, often. So... Uh, uh, um, but what, in terms of as a format, what's interesting is, is that it's interesting in the places in which that's kind of resonated. Um, it's been very popular in Scandinavia. Um, it's uh, been made in France and Canada and Holland and, and now Australia. And I, I think it's um, often places which um, I don't quite know how the Australian system works, but obviously in, in the UK, um, healthcare is is kind of free and is paid by the government and I think those places where there's a kind of social healthcare system and people really put a value in it um, people there's always a reason to explore that obviously everyone that does that does it in a does it in a slightly different way um, but you can kind of see the endeavor within that um, uh, and I think that that makes it appealing to watch but also um, uh, sometimes when you put a limitation on yourself um, it can be a really good thing I think you can get a lot out of that so I, I think that um, each of the countries that I've talked to about doing this they've each sort of really you can kind of see the excitement in the venture and I think that actually shows in the rushes as well so I know that in documentary making we're very very used to sort of telling stories over long periods of time but sometimes that limitation just uh, sort of mobilises and energises people in, in an interesting way. So can I ask a question? Mm. Do you think that your English version would translate to another country? Did I? Mm. Would, it, would it? Would people, I mean, would it go to America? Oh, we see. Would it set? You mean uh, the finished tape? I yeah. think less so. I mean, I, to be honest, I don't know. I'm sure the finished tape has sold, but I don't know whether it's... Um, 
I don't. I don't know what how. Would Americans watch? No, no. No. See, that's the same. Yeah. I don't think so. I think it's in the same in the yeah. same way that you know people have a care about the healthcare in their own nation. They're not so bothered about watching other people's healthcare. Healthcare, yeah. And also, in a way, it's not a. Although, say in England, it wasn't. A, it's not like a political series particularly, but there's the NHS, the health service, is a particularly political and contentious um, subject. Well, particularly uh, at the moment uh, too, because the junior doctors are yeah, all yeah, on yeah. strike as we speak. So, and we, and in a way, how people feel about that healthcare system, how they feel about the kind of reach, if you like, of it, is is significant, and I think is significant in lots of different countries. So, sort of being able to have a snapshot of exactly how far that healthcare system reaches is 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 worthwhile and compelling. I think. Do you now, when you're making, you know, when you're coming up with ideas like this, think, okay, who are we going to sell it to as well? I mean, it, you, you know, mean, it's, it's your business. Internationally. Mm. Uh, not I think, just the tape, not the tape, but as a format. I see. Uh, well, generally everything we do, do um, originates in, we, in the UK. But, of course, um, if there's something that we have an eye on that could travel internationally, that that is of interest as well. But it's, I think it's quite difficult. You have to concentrate on the people that you are selling to um, first and foremost. I think that you wouldn't be able to, because otherwise, I don't know, things be- could become a bit rounded off on the edges, a little bit less distinctive, if you started with too much with the international aspect of it. But of course, I think you ha- you should should always have an eye on what what potential there is for the thing that you've created to have a life beyond its that the sort of territory that it's born in i think and that's the point really that's where formats are a business really aren't they that you're yeah. not just making television for a one-off screening yeah. anymore and that that how you can yeah. on sell things is really crucial part of all of it and, and when you do that i think um like I've had quite a lot of success with turning documentaries into other things like, you know, um, a one-hour documentary and turning into a showreel for a series. And so what you make in your own country doesn't necessarily mean it'll be the same formats somewhere else. You can adapt them. Yeah. Um, and in the documentary world, really, it's very hard to sell one hours as a format. That's really important that you take what you made in the beginning and... Um, do it up to a showreel for something else. I used to be a documentary maker too, um, a very broke one, but um, I, read a, I read a little um, article in a newspaper about a town, a small town in the South Island of New Zealand, which was desperate for women. Um, they were just about to lose their town nurse. It was a, a, a town in the middle of a bunch of high country stations. They basically had um, about 85% men and no young women, so there were no wives, uh, no nurses, and they were desperate, so they were we're going to hold a whole weekend to entertain women from uh, all over the country, and they're going to bring them by a big train from the nearest city. And so um, I made a documentary, which was two um, one hours, following five women who went uh, on this journey. Um, I think the interesting thing about it is, well, I um, took it to MIP, and uh, I, an agent saw it there and showed it to an American agent. And I ended up uh, going off to LA to um, pitch it. And the first pitch was to uh, Fox, and they loved it. And I was so excited. First pitch in the US, it sold a format. It was, you know, the start of a whole new career. After um, Australia said you couldn't make films for Australian market. Well, you know, they got over <laughs> it. <laughs> but it was um, the interesting thing was when the deal came back, 
I had a bit of a shock because the deal said that uh, I would lose, I think at that stage, first deal was 90% of the format, so I'd retain only, only 10% of the format. I would have nothing to do with the production. I would get a co-EP credit, um, and I think they offered me about 100K. It was 100 grand. And so I was, it was a real problem for me to think, you know, here I am, I get my first break in the American market, or... I say no to the steel and they walk away. And because it was Fox, you pretty much knew that something similar might appear if I didn't do the deal. So I did do the deal and I lost 75% of the format. Um, Fox kept 50, their showrunner company kept 25 and I kept 25. Um, and I think I got 20% of um, the finished tape and 120K and a co-EP credit. But I guess the thing, the hardest thing for me was that they just said, nah, you know, you can go along and sit in their offices for a couple of day and be, days and be in the meetings, which I did, but they really, really didn't want to know about my expertise or anything because they had the own, their own um, vision for, for what would happen to the show. But um, the extent to which they went to turn what was an ordinary little docu-soap into a major reality series, and that is 15 years old, and... Um, and, you know, went, they spent, like, I think about 1.3 million in EP on it, you know, and this is in the year 2000. So hmm. it was a bit of a wake-up call for me um, and to realise that you may, in your first sale, have to compromise in order to get that first sale. So really I ended up having absolutely nothing to do with my own format. I, I mean, at least they bought it from you. They, they weren't did, they inspired did. by it. And, and by the way, I got to go to Alaska. But even <laughs> if you saw that first take, the first taste take, you would definitely buy that. I mean, that's a really good idea, isn't it? Well, it was before The Bachelor and Farm yeah, Wants yeah. a Wife. No, so I'm, was, I'm yeah. just saying that. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's it was, but I, I guess, you know, because of the New Zealand market being so small and documentary being so difficult, I did that a lot. I turned docos into reality shows and went traipsing off to America. Um, was that with the original? And it worked. I did another one on Coyote Ugly based on the movie, Coyote Ugly. I did a reality series for four years in America um, based on just basically taking that movie and turning it into a... Uh, factual series. And was the first doc that you made, was that, was that based on a real scheme? Like what, a real life, the, the, um, the, the, husband the, the husband hunt, was that based on, that was a... Yeah, 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 yeah so it was a real, it was an event, I didn't invent the event, I read about it in the paper, so <laughs> I think, uh, especially now in the uh, American cable market, we, you know, you're still getting budgets of up to 700,000 an episode. You, you can turn your job, if you can turn your documentary into a series, if you are making one-off documentaries, there's a real market for it. And the great thing about the Americans, you don't have to have, um, you don't have to have made it as a series. And, and there's just, the American market has no prejudice about um, where the producer comes from. They're much more open to everybody because they just want the best ideas. But when do you let go if you feel that your product that you believe in and you've, mm. you know, is just out there and not being produced in the way you want? Well, I guess for me what happened was, um, and this kind of leads into a court case which I ended up in, was if you go if you go pitch and say in the American market, and th at this time that was the big one, everyone wanted their show in the American market because they were paying so much money. So if you go and pitch there and there's competition, you can get whatever deal you want. Mm. But if only one place wants it, you've got to really weigh up what's going to happen to you, you know. Um, so it's what, about demand, really. What would you have done differently? 
What would you have done differently on the deal, knowing what you know now? Would you have accepted the same deal? On Batroots and Alaska? Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. You, you know, you get you got exposure to the American market at a time when there wasn't really any, you know, it's 15 years ago. So, um, and you know, as it turns out, Batroots and Alaska was the precursor, we'll call it that, to The Bachelor. Yeah. So, you know, you can look back in your career and go, maybe I inspired someone for what has turned out to be. A very um, lucrative franchise. Yeah, well, you know, you don't know because most things in television are derivative, um, especially now. But it, 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 I think you've got to be prepared to, you've got to take your product and say, maybe it is just for the Australian market, but you put an international voiceover on it, you use their words, like they were all scenes from New Zealand, but I was very careful to use American language. And you can, you know, sell something, you just have to get get an agent and get it out there. It's good advice. Magnus, um, I think, I mean, what I'd like to talk a bit about now is about how, you, like Julie's been describing, how you do develop formats mm. um, for other markets. How do you approach it? Um, it completely depends. But I, I, I think, like Julie said, I think it's often not, uh, something you produce in the UK may not be quite the finished article. Um, uh, in terms of if you're trying to establish as a, a format. So sometimes it's actually just trying to identify a what thing in it is a format um, uh, and therefore would be appealing to the international market. So uh, it depends because obviously something like Keeping Britain Alive, that in terms of how that's produced elsewhere, it's exactly the same proposition. Nothing has changed about it. Yes, it might be that people send out, I know, slightly less camera crews, um, but um, uh, that, that's not adapted at all. But there are other cases where you might have to adapt something mm -hmm. or look for an opportunity. And sometimes that's just about actually getting into conversations with people in different markets to understand, okay, here's some stuff that we have. Is there anything in this that you might be able to do? I mean, Julie's obviously done an yeah, amazing job. You know what I find the most, you know, having sold them to more than 30 countries, the thing they always want to add is presenters. You know, they always want to add a host <laughs> to everything, you know, everything you make. I, I don't know what, what it is, you know, because some shows carry themselves, but I don't know if that's ever happened with um, border security, but the the pressure is always there. They just want to add a host no matter what you say. It's like, oh, but we've got this guy signed to the network and we need a, a role for him. And so it's always like add a host, add a host. Money. Some of us have it. He's got masses of Russian caviar. I'm a fan of caviar. Are you? And some of us don't. We're not on the poverty line. 49p. But we're not far off. But we all love spending it. <laughs> Welcome to the nation's spending secrets. <laughs> Each show focuses on two families. Oh my God. Oh, all this stuff. Who will life swap for a number of days. I think they've got more money than me and Paul. And judge how each other lives. Total household income, 67,500. That's a lot of money. <laughs> and spends. This is just a different kind of shop where things are old rather than new. I, I actually feel a bit, bit sick at the, the thought of it, really. Before making three suggestions on how they could improve their lives. Darren thinks he's better than us. 
there's a Timberland shirt. They would stay on the hangar. Their perception is they're struggling, they're not struggling. Which they must promise to try. Do you feel that you've got a good grasp of how much you spend on the children? Probably not. You've paid a lot for something that you didn't need to pay for. That could be dead tomorrow. While our host travels across the nation. It's just because I'm on benefits, why shouldn't I have the nicer things in life? And meet those living the high life. How much did you pay for the house? About 90 million. And those that have left it all behind. So everything you're eating comes from a bin. Um, it's a new format that Magus has taken. Um, it comes out of very similar to what Julie's describing in a sense. It came out of a show called... Yeah, so this is... Um, uh, it was only actually a two-part series that we made um, last year for BBC One. And it was just called Britain's Spending Secrets. And there's, it's not really a format. It's got a presenter, um, Anne Robinson, who basically goes around um, sort of... Is it The Weakest Link? Yeah, yeah, that one, yeah. And the weakest link, Anne Robinson. Um, Mm. So so she kind of goes around and sort of just is curious and nosy about people's, different people's spending habits and attitudes to spending. And sort of hidden within it, there's a uh, a kind of a swap dynamic where one, uh, someone from one family goes to live with another family and they kind of, you know, they, they work out what their different attitudes to spending are. So what we've done internationally um, is expanded that swap out so that feels like it's absolutely front and centre. So And in that way, it becomes it feels like more of a format. And in a way, because it was, I think when it aired in the UK, the show was, I think, the highest rating new show in the UK last year. It was only a two-parter. So it felt like actually there was definitely must be some opportunity internationally, even though we had to sort of adapt it a bit. So you're heading off to MIP. You're, you're, are you going to pitch? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure whether I'm going to go, but we, we will be there and we will be pitching that, yeah. So what sort of research would you have, just as a how-to guide for people here who might realise that their docs can be made into great formats and they're off to pitch them, what sort of information can you give them? I mean, how, what sort of, who, who would that be pitched to? <sighs> I mean, there are obviously, internationally, there are certain kind of key markets anyway. So, um, obviously, um, America and Australia, New Zealand. I mean, there's... Germany. There's Germany, yeah. Biggest budgets. Um, I mean, so, so a lot of the other territories, in terms of selling something as a format, it, it will never, it won't add up to very much. But if you get a sale in the States or Australia or Germany, then that, that can be more significant. Okay. Julie, if you had something like that, where would be your first, what would your instincts well, be in, well, in your old life? It's actually very broad because it can be made on all sorts of budgets. Like, so um, you really learn to, um, I remember many years I'm ago. I'm taking notes, Julie, by the way. Yeah, no. Well, I, I can see, you know, in 2007 I worked for my company, so I've been exposed a lot to the Dutch, um, Belgians, Scandinavians, and and. New Zealand budget's about half of Australia. Scandinavian are the same as New Zealand. Dutch budgets are the same as Australia. Um, Belgian budgets are about the same as Australia. So you start to start pitching first. You know, when you're talking, you're talking to people who, who when you say 200,000 an ep, they get it, you know, they, they get, oh, okay, 100,000 euros or whatever. So you do find yourself drifting towards the people who know that they, it can be made for that sort of money, and that's what happens. Um, I th- 
there's no doubt that getting an English speaking uh, sale is vital if you're going to your format's going to travel the world, and you really probably got to start there. And it probably goes America, um, Australia, really are the two biggest places to get. I, I think because those two markets are seen as very competitive, um, everyone's I think in the international market are very very aware of how competitive the Australian television market is. And therefore, if it gets up here, it, it carries a lot of kudos. So, you know, the show doesn't have to have been made elsewhere. The fact that you've sold it, even if you've... Because the thing about formats is most of them are optioned, as you probably know. So you can have a show which is optioned for 50 countries and only ever gets made in three. But if it's been optioned by a lot of people, a lot of countries, then it's, it's enormously valuable to you. Is there money to be made in options? Well, an option will be um, for... Uh, a good British format, in my experience, would be about between fifteen and twenty thousand. Um, for something out of Australia, uh, about ten thousand for about a six-month option. The trap with options: you option something, the longer you option it for, the more trapped you are, obviously, because op options are exclusive. You can't keep pitching it to other people. So, it's really argy bargy. Should I just give them three months and take five grand? Which is probably smarter, or I give them a year and take 25. So um, most places will option, um, and a, a part of that option will be all sorts. Well, the good thing about options is they set what the deal will be if they make it. So you know up front if uh, they take up the option and go into production, this is how much I will get. Format fees will be set at, um, I'm surprised that Magnus said 5% because my experience in this market, they're um, around about 10% now. Thank you. <laughs> and um, and that's pretty normal. Some of the because there's some very big production companies in this market who charge even more than that. But um, so so you can make decent, you can make okay money on option fees. The big money to be made is if you get to be the producer in that market. So if you get to produce something yourself in America rather than using a showrunner, I mean EP fees in America are phenomenal. What you get, you can you know you get a hundred thousand dollars an episode. Um, executive producer fees so um, getting to actually be involved in making it in the market is where the big money is. Um, but you're talking about formats and you're talking about sort of major networks and, and, mm. and big production houses Sometimes. but there are other ways to do it I mean yeah. I, I think you know for instance you know just using look I do a lot more than border security just yes saying. you I've do got you've got 12 series under your belt yeah but, anyway, but, but just you're talking about border there's two formats out there in different countries, but it's sold as border to 170 countries mm. around the world, subtitled or revoiced um, as border, um, not necessarily on major channels. But there are so many platforms out there, so I think you should, mm. you know, as programmers, you know, people should be just as proud if, if you're selling, just reselling your show. And on it's the out finished there. tape. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I, heck yeah. That, you should be, yeah. That's, I mean, for us um, as a company, uh, we make much, much more money from finished tape mm. than we do from formats. The formats, I'd say, is a, is a, is a small amount of the kind of what you yeah, call and the like back I said, end income. The money in formats is if you get to go to another country yeah. market. And it's worth it for yeah, anyone yeah. who gets to work in the American market. It's, it's worth it just to see the sheer amount of money they can spend. <laughs> mm. And a lot, I mean, a, a lot of the benefit of the original material, of course, is to generate interest in a format, well, something that becomes a format. Um, so that if, I know Foxtel's policy, for example, is that you, if you've got a great series from the UK and it does well, then they're much more interested in making the local version than they would have been had they not run the British yeah, show I mean, first. Yeah, yeah. 
So, okay, so let's talk a little bit about you've, you've got your formats and you're on the, on the trail. How do you start selling a format, Julie? It really depends what market you're working in. I mean, you need, uh, you can look for a distributor, um, but there are all sorts of, you know, things that um, can go wrong with distributors. So you've got to look really carefully at what else they've got on their books. If they're a big um, company, they may just want to tie your format up so they can push their own. That's happened to plenty of people. Um, with big, the bigger production companies, and there's quite a few ba um, based here in Australia, they'll frequently, um, they'll have a deal whereby their affiliates in different countries get a right to the show for the first six to nine months. So your show might not get pitched. So you get a distributor, or if you want to go to the States, you get an agent, really. That's the way forward. And good thing about America is pretty much if they think there's any chance they can sell it, um, you can get an agent, so that's the way it works. But with distribution, you need to you need to look really carefully about distribution deals because if you, you, know, you go along to MIP and you wonder why in half our meetings your show isn't being pitched, it's probably because they've got 50 more of their own, which are way more important than yours. So uh, distributors are about finding the best relationship. How I, I initially had a distributor who was really good, then I found um, uh, that she lost interest in the great thing I had in my distribution agreement, and I can't say enough if you can get this, is a key man clause. You create a relationship with one person in that distribution company, and you get the key man clause. So if that person's no longer looking after your format or your show, then um, you can get out of your distribution agreement because they're usually really tough, and they're usually for years. So um, knowing how to get in and out of distribution agreements is, is key if you want to sell. Magnus? I was going to say, uh, can I take you on, Julie, as a consultant? <laughs> <laughs> You're deaf. Now Just I think years I, no, of we've, mistakes. We've, no, no, we've. I, I, I remember um, distinctly a, a scenario where we tried to get a key man clause in a distribution mm. agreement, and we didn't match. Anyway, um, but you live and learn. Um, uh, uh, I would say that. Um, I mean, the, the thing about America, you obviously need an agent. Um, but the problem is, I, I find in the American market is, is just having any sense of uh, when something has really got traction or not, because obviously you can have an, an enormous amount of meetings there and be told that everything you're pitching is absolutely wonderful. Uh, <laughs> and they then, do you and then, overuse awesome and great, yeah. don't they? Uh, so it's quite, I, I think in a way, the way we work is we try and use as much expertise as we can tap into mm. In those local markets because you can't um, you can't be everywhere and although I think it is important to um, pitch your own shows and I think it's I think it's useful for the broadcasters to see the the kind of producer that is behind the show I think that's quite meaningful um, uh, but I, I, I would I wouldn't claim to be an expert on um, any other territory really apart from the UK so as much as possible we use whether it's through a distributor through agents, through um, uh, other companies that we've kind of hooked up with around the world, we always try and use that sort of lo local local knowledge to really work out whether something we've got is going to be pitchable, and if so, in which way? Because often, you know, you could easily get it wrong. You might think, "Oh, we think this is great," and they could say, "Do you know what? You don't really want to pitch it in that way." Um, mm -hmm. And obviously, markets like kind of MIP are, um, are um, quite significant. 
for that sort of thing. Um, so we tend to, we tend to go along to that and. Um, uh, but it's always better if you've got a bit of a sort of, rather than sort of just like meeting everyone, I always find it better if you've got a particular, particular people in mind. Okay. And, pitch. and for your own safety, I mean, I, my advice would be don't pitch paper. You know, fake up something, have something on tape, just always have something which shows that it's real. Yeah. Um, the, the paper ideas are virtually <clears throat> worthless, I think. Yeah. And, and, and when it comes to protecting copyright. Pitch specifically, know who you're pitching to, mm. what they want, what their needs are. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It, it, I mean, in, Amer in America particularly, it's, it's very, very hard to sort of pr protect an idea unless it's already been made. And so, you know, unless it can be proven that it's already ex in existence, um, they'll just, it's, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Julie is one of the few people in the world, I think, who've probably taken on um, an American broadcast. Do you want to tell that story, Julie? Um, I think it's more a story about, um, I think we all, um, as storytellers, have this thing about keeping hold of our IP and the value of our IP. Well, in um, 2002, I developed a game show. It was on the, um, the time Millionaire was huge all over the world and everyone was trying to game shows and developed a game show and um, I developed it using a 10 second pitch which was um, if you can't keep your heart under control then um, while, while you're answering a question then your money starts going backwards and I faked up a show reel um, and uh, actually it looked like we'd actually made the show and we went off to America and I pitched it and got into a situation when the agent was there in the room both times where um, both Fox and ABC wanted it. There was such a fight for it that um, I thought I was being incredibly smart because after my experience last time I thought I'll keep all the IP this time and I'll keep all the net receipts. So I got a deal out of ABC where I retained the format, um, I retained 60% of the finished tape sales. I, I actually got to set up a production company in the States, which was the first time anyone from our part of the world, from Australia and New Zealand, had been able to do that. They just did everything to make sure they could get the show. I thought I was so smart um, until, and that was in November, and then on Christmas Eve I got a, um, a call from ABC in the States saying, you better get here, you've got two weeks to make that game show because Fox are making one called The Chamber. So it was the chair versus the chamber. The difference between the chair and the chamber was that people were put in a, inside a heat a freezing cold or fire hot um, chamber while they answer the questions with their heart monitor on. So because I owned the IP, ABC demanded that I do the suing. So um, if I had, in hindsight, let them have the IP but instead re um, retained most of the net receipts from it because your IP doesn't have value unless you retain the earnings from it, from the exploitation of it. Um, which is normally in the American market, they'll take the IP and just give you a share of the receipts. So um, I had to sue, um, I had to sue Fox. So I think it was uh, four or five weeks in, my bill was nearly a million US dollars. Um, and we were in a really difficult situation because we were on the same lot. Um, they alleged one of our people had walked, pa had, uh, walked past um, the asset, they countersued. Um, they then claimed that actually uh, pitch documents weren't confidential, which shook the industry, therefore they had every right to use parts of the pitch doc. So it all turned to custard for me really at the same time I was trying to make the show and um, and as a result of, the, they had a lot of shock, fear factor um, factors in their, in their show and the result was I had no choice but to settle. 
um, because I couldn't afford to go any further. Um, I, I, I'd up, I was up to, I, mean, I was getting paid a hell of a lot of money, to be fair, to make this game show. It was ridiculous. It was a, a million dollars an ep. But um, I couldn't afford the, the lawyer's fees, so we settled confidentially. Um, I was fine out of it, that's all I can really say. But um, what it had done, it had distracted me from the show, and as a result, we ended up having crocodiles hanging over people while they were doing the game show and all sorts of crazy things, which never happened in the other 29 countries other than Japan, of course. Of course <laughs> it happened in Japan um, that made it. So um, the moral of the story really is... Um, You've got to be really careful not to get distracted from the main heartier format um, and don't let them put crocodiles over contestants. But uh, do you really need to own your IP or do you need to own the, the, the revenue from the exploitation? There's plenty, I mean, you know, Peter Jackson, I don't think he doesn't own any of the Lord of the Rings, but boy, every time they sell one of those dolls, he's getting the money from the exploitation. So I think that's one of the, the main thing I'd say to you Think carefully about your deal, and and because if you have to protect it, who's going to do the sewing? Because the because if if ABC had taken full IP, they would have been the ones sewing. Or any IP, yeah, and, and not they would have had to, and then it could have gone on without me worrying. Yeah, and and, and spending money. Yeah, but it, and in America, of course, there's case precedent. In America, um, the judge who was assigned the case um, had. A history of um, awarding costs. The plaintiff lost. I was the plaintiff. Awarding costs. All so imagine me having to pay Fox's legal costs. It just got too scary. So um, and and the chamber lasted three episodes on Fox. That they debuted the night before us, and we uh, lasted nine on ABC. But I got to sell it to twenty nine countries and did incredibly well out of it. But it was just a it was a really tough experience on what can happen you know in copyright breach i've been there's been a few scraps in this market too um i remember um but and, a re and of course a very recent one um i think it, it, when it comes to a game show it's a lot different because there are so many rules and the shows were so similar you know you were wearing a heart monitor while you had to ask the questions if you couldn't keep your heart under control the money was going backwards so the level of similarity was so great that ABC believed they'd be able to get stop Fox and it'd get pulled off air. So, but you know, they did, you know, I called it ABCD because it's owned by Disney, so it's ABC Disney and you did get dragged right up to the top and a gun put to your head and said sue. So I think it's different with game shows because they're so specific. But in, I don't know other than Opportunity Knox, which is a really old precedent now in English-speaking markets, but um, usually they settle, you know. Someone pays someone some money. Awesome. All right, I'm just going to end the session by asking you guys to just give a little bit of advice about, you know, what's your advice to, about what makes a really great format and what's your advice to these guys about getting it up? <coughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, something that is universal but has uh, an incredibly distinct proposition is probably a handy idea. Okay. Something that you have passion about and that you believe in and a couple of good characters, not necessarily huge characters as we talked about before. Um, and again, something that would translate, something human that translates globally.
And I, I should say before I get Julie's answer that she was also in a um, format as Dragon's Den. She was one of the New Zealand businesswomen who was in Dragon's Den. So you've seen it from both sides of the world. But what, what's your advice, Julie? Um, I guess I'll, I'd come from a point of view of pitching. Um, and I, I think you have to be able to define it in 10 seconds. And you have to come up with a five-second version and say that five times during the pitch. And when they repeat it back to you in their own talking, you know you've got, got them. But the, the, the weakness of formats is, that they, is if they take too long to explain. I think when that's the best advice I can give, really, is define it in 10 seconds, get the five-second line, and say it so often they hear it back and you go, I've made it. Done it. <laughs> They're repeating my words. <laughs> what's a, what? Just as a question without notice, what's the format that you wish you'd created? Oh, that's a great question. I know that's yeah, that most six, that you didn't create, but that you wish you well, had. Well, here's an interesting one. So, um, uh, we did a series. Uh, this is quite some time called called The Family, which was our first. Well, which was on SBS. Yeah. yeah, which was our first fixed rig show. And basically the trailer for it, um, Channel 4 made, basically had uh, people at home in their living room watching the family and reacting to it. Um, and, and that was a missed opportunity because obviously then a few, few, few years later came along Gogglebox. So um, <laughs> <laughs> that was a missed opportunity for you. Any you've thought of, Lyndall, that you'd go, oh, I wish I'd done that? No, I quite like what I do. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, I'm quite happy. Julie. Um, or two, two actually. Undercover Boss is the cleverest one recently, but I think a while ago, some who won't remember it, um, 1900 House. Oh, yeah, the living was made out of England, where they sent, and it was the first show that sent a modern family back to live exactly as they would have in 1900. Uh, we made it in New Zealand called Pioneer House, and I must say, it was just the best. All right. Well, look, with that, I'd like to say thank you very much to the panel. You've been totally fantastic and love you to bits. And thanks a lot for the audience for coming too. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website. How did the series 